Welcome to this episode of the award-winning Best of the Left podcast, in which we shall take a look at some of the fundamental problems with our education system and explore alternatives to spark ideas for improvement. And note that last point about sparking ideas. That really is what we're doing here. You're going to be hearing some ideas for educational systems that directly contradict one another, so this isn't our list of solutions that we endorse, so much as we think it's worth hearing about all of these ideas to get a sense of what's out there, as well as the desperation that people feel for something outside our current system. Clips today include a TED Talk by Sir Ken Robinson, Second Thought, New Ideal, Vice News, Amanpour and Company, Vox, The Social Europe Podcast, and The Bunker, with additional members-only clips from Andrew Parker and Education on Fire. Our education system is predicated on the idea of academic ability. And there's a reason. The whole system was invented around the world. There were no public systems of education really before the 19th century. They all came into being to meet the needs of industrialism. So the hierarchy is rooted on two ideas. Number one, that the, the most useful subjects for work are at the top. So you were probably steered benignly away from things at school when you were a kid, things you liked, on the ground you would never get a job doing that. Is that right? Don't do music, you're not going to be a musician. Don't do art, you won't be an artist. Uh, benign advice. Now, profoundly mistaken. The whole world is engulfed in a revolution. And the second is academic ability, which has really come to dominate our view of intelligence because the universities designed the system in their image. If you think of it, the whole system of public education around the world is a protracted process of university entrance. And the consequence is that many highly talented, brilliant, creative people think they're not because the thing they were good at at school wasn't valued or was actually stigmatized. And I think we can't afford to go on that way. In the next 30 years, according to UNESCO, more people worldwide will be graduating through education than since the beginning of history. More people. And it's the combination of all the things we've talked about, technology and its transformation effect on work, and demography and the huge explosion in population. Suddenly, degrees aren't worth anything. Isn't that true? When I was a student, if you had a degree, you had a job. If you didn't have a job, it's because you didn't want one. And I didn't want one, frankly. So, um, but now, kids with, with degrees are often heading home uh, to carry on playing video games. Because you need an MA, where the previous job required a BA, and now you need a PhD for the other. It's a process of academic inflation. And it indicates the whole structure of education is shifting beneath our feet. We need to radically rethink our view of intelligence. We know three things about intelligence. One, it's diverse. We think about the world in all the ways that we experience it. We think visually, we think in sound, we think kinesthetically. Uh, we think in abstract terms, we think in movement. Secondly, intelligence is dynamic. If you look at the interactions of a human brain, as we heard yesterday from a number of presentations, intelligence is wonderfully interactive. The brain isn't divided into compartments. In fact, creativity, which I define as the process of having original ideas that have value, more often than not, comes about through the interaction of different disciplinary ways of seeing things. And the third thing about intelligence is it's distinct. I, I'm doing a new book at the moment called Epiphany, which is uh, based on a series of interviews with people about how they discovered their talent. I'm fascinated by how people got to be there. Uh, it's really prompted by a conversation I had with a wonderful woman who may, most people have never heard of. She's called Gillian Lynn. Have you heard of her? Some have. She's a choreographer, and everybody knows her work. She did Cats and Phantom of the Opera. She's wonderful. I used to be on the board of the Royal Ballet in England. 
as you can see. And uh, anyway, Julian and I had lunch one day. I said, how'd you get to be a dancer? And she said it was interesting. When she was at school, she was really hopeless. And the school in the 30s wrote to her parents and said, we think Gillian has a learning disorder. You couldn't concentrate. She was fidgeting. I think now they'd say she had ADHD. Wouldn't you? But this was the 1930s, and ADHD hadn't been invented you know, at this point, so it wasn't an available condition. You know, people, people, people weren't aware they could have that. Anyway, she sent, went to see this, um, this specialist. So this oak-panelled room, and, and she was there with, uh, with her mother, and she was led and sat on this uh, chair at the end, and she sat on her hands for 20 minutes while this man talked to her mother about all the problems Gillian was having at school. And at the end of it, um, because she was disturbing people, her homework was always late, and so on, a little kid of eight. In the end, uh, the, uh, the doctor went and sat next to Gillian and said, Gillian, I've listened to all these things that your mother's told me. I need to speak to her privately. So she said, he, he said, wait here, we'll be back, we won't be very long, and, and, uh, and they went and left her. But as they went out the room, he turned on the radio that was sitting on his desk. And when they got out the room, he said to her mother, just stand and watch her. And um, the minute they left the room, she said she was on her feet, moving to the music. And they watched for a few minutes, and he turned to her mother, and he said, you know, Mrs. Lynn, Gillian isn't sick, she's a dancer. <laughs> Take her to a dance school. I said, what happened? said, she did. I can't tell you how wonderful it was. We walked in this room, and it was full of people like me. People who couldn't sit still. People who had to move to think. Who had to move to think. They did ballet, they did tap, they did jazz, they did modern, they did contemporary. She was eventually auditioned for the Royal Ballet School. She became a soloist. She had a wonderful career at the Royal Ballet. She eventually graduated from the Royal Ballet School, found her own company, the Julian Dance Company, met Andrew Lloyd Webber. She's been responsible for some of the most successful musical theatre productions in history. She's given pleasure to millions, and she's a multimillionaire. Somebody else might have put her on medication and told her to calm down. <laughs> Al Gore spoke uh, the other night about ecology and the revolution that was triggered um, by Rachel Carson. I believe our only hope for the future is to adopt a new conception of human ecology, one in which we start to reconstitute our conception of the richness of human capacity. Our education system has mined our minds in the way that we've strip-mined the earth for a particular commodity. And for the future, it won't serve us. We have to rethink the fundamental principles on which we're educating our children. There was a wonderful quote by Jonas Salk, who said, if, you were to, uh, if all the insects were to disappear from the earth, uh, within 50 years, all life on earth would end. If all human beings disappeared from the earth, Within 50 years, all forms of life would flourish. And he's right. What Ted celebrates is the gift of the human imagination. We have to be careful now that we use this gift wisely and that we avert some of the scenarios that we've talked about. And the only way we'll do it is by seeing our creative capacities for the richness they are and seeing our children for the hope that they are. And our task is to educate their whole being so they can face this future. By the way, we may not see this future, but they will. And our job is to help them make something of it.
Over the past couple of decades, various federal initiatives have provided parents the option of using federal funds to send their children to private schools, whether by providing so-called school choice vouchers or allowing for the possibility of school transfers, where students can move from low-performing schools to higher-performing private schools. This has led to a number of problems. The most obvious is that by spending federal money to incentivize parents to enroll their children in private school, they've robbed public schools of badly needed funding. Why spend money to move kids around when you could simply fund the schools that are designed to be funded by that money? Because of this practice, public schools face a vicious cycle. There's not enough money to pay teachers, so teachers leave, which leads to more students in each class, which overwhelms the remaining teachers. There's not enough money for school supplies or even basic school maintenance, which leads to unsafe learning environments. These problems compound over time, which makes the schools perform worse, which then suggests to the federal government that they're doing the right thing by incentivizing the move to private schools. Okay, but if the private schools perform better and the average parent can afford them, why not just abandon public schools? There are a few reasons, some innate to how private schools operate and some based on the responsibility of the federal government. First and foremost, it has been long established that the state has a responsibility to provide access to free education to every student. This is non-negotiable at least for now. If public schools didn't exist, there would be students who could not afford to go to private school. Since education is a right, this is unacceptable. So, for the time being, the federal government cannot reasonably get rid of public schools entirely. The other issues stem from the private schools themselves. By their very nature, private schools are not beholden to any kind of governance when it comes to what is taught within their walls. All they have to do is provide proof that their education meets basic educational standards. This has led to an upsurge in what can be considered reactionary, or, as the schools prefer, traditional education. What this means in essence is that most private schools skew intensely religious, conservative, and insular. Their student body is overwhelmingly white, Christian, and wealthy. Now, there's nothing inherently wrong with a parent wanting their child to get a religious education. But the problem is, in the U.S., Christianity has been co-opted by conservatism. Gone are the days when people understood Jesus to be a brown communist from the Middle East, who railed against the rich and preached inclusion, decency, and the value of living humbly. Most American Christians have grafted the language of conservatism onto their faith. Homophobia, racism, unfettered free market economics, and a rabid hatred for anything that could be considered even remotely socialist. This is not by accident. The political right has adopted religious, patriotic language in an attempt to secure a large and dedicated voting bloc, evangelicals, and it's worked. In modern private schools, and I should know, I attended one, it's not uncommon to see PragerU videos shown in class. It's not uncommon to see economics classes that espouse the suicidal free market ideology of Friedman and Rand. History classes portray the U.S. as the good guy in every conflict, including those where we were clearly in the wrong. Today's supposedly Christian education would not be recognized as such by the Jesus of the Bible. Instead, it's a new religion, the religion of free market conservatism. It shouldn't come as a surprise that those in power are doing their best to get more students enrolled in private school. Indoctrinating them into the cult of capitalism while they're young is the only way they can produce more pro-corporate voters. Heck, judging by what we've seen recently, it wouldn't come as a surprise to see public schools go the same way. The previous administration even suggested the creation of a commission for patriotic education, a slate of pro-America, capitalist, imperialist propaganda. This disturbing trend towards privatization and capitalist indoctrination aside, what's perhaps the bigger problem with American education is the fact that the entire system is simply outdated. Remember the Massachusetts School Board? The one established in 1837? Well, that's when the standards for education were established. The stated goal was to educate young people. But if you take a look at how school was and is structured, it becomes more clear what education was actually for. Like it is today, the school day was strictly regimented. 
Teachers expected absolute obedience. The bell instructed students when the day began and ended, and punishment was doled out for any perceived non-compliance. If the students retained some basic arithmetic, great. But the real goal was to produce obedient, servile workers for the factories of the Industrial Revolution. Step onto a factory floor and what's expected? Obedience. Focus. The ability to follow instructions for hours on end. The day even began and ended with a bell. School was then and remains today an instrument to instill discipline, to mass-produce agreeable little cogs for the industrial machine. The standardization of schooling ensured these cogs were nice and uniform, easily replaceable and expendable. Today, nearly two centuries later, factory labor is no longer the prime driver of the economy. Companies still need workers, but they demand a new set of skills. Young people entering the workforce are expected to be able to be flexible, creative, and on-call at unreasonable hours. Even from a capitalist perspective, modern-day schooling does not adequately prepare our students for the real world. Of course, preparing students for a lifetime of servitude should not be the goal of a good education. Let's examine the main issues in regards to outdatedness. Which of these two hypothetical classes sounds more applicable to real life, Latin or home economics? Guess which one is more commonly taught. If the goal of school is to prepare kids for the real world as we're meant to believe, we are doing our students a great disservice. Why don't we teach home economics classes? Why don't we teach high schoolers how to file taxes? What about useful things like basic first aid? We simply don't teach applicable skills. Then there's the fact that school curriculum just hasn't kept pace with advancements in modern technology. Basic computer classes are offered as electives, if at all. Even less common are video production, digital art, coding, web design, 3D modeling, and countless other modern skills. We're letting students down when we don't acquaint them with modern tools. Okay, so what are some solutions we could pursue? It's all well and good to say, teach better classes, but that only addresses part of the problem. The root cause of many of the issues our education system faces is that we simply don't have an incentive to teach our students. As with anything in America, if there's no financial incentive, nothing will change. The profit motive is the bottom line. Private schools have an incentive to at least prepare students for standardized testing, so that their parents will be happy and keep paying tens of thousands of dollars per year for tuition. But that education comes packaged with truly damaging ideology, so making private schools more accessible would not be a long-term solution, as those students would go on to pass even more ludicrous free market education reforms. Vocational schools are an option if we truly believe the only purpose of education should be to prepare students for the job market. There's a lot to be said for picking a trade and excelling in it. Electricians, welders, AC technicians, these are all critical roles in our society. One problem with vocational schools is that they typically come with a tuition, which can be a difficult burden for many families. Homeschooling is another option, though in the U.S. it often carries a similar connotation to private schools. Many homeschooled children come from very religious backgrounds and are kept separate from other kids their age, which can lead to serious developmental issues. That being said, there are plenty of homeschooling programs that include on-location learning, such as in museums or on community college campuses. This offers a more diverse, hands-on experience for students and can provide an excellent learning environment depending on the child. Now, that right there is something we don't discuss enough in the U.S. Appropriate education depends on the child. We don't all learn the same way. Some students learn more quickly than others. Some require hands-on experience. Some learn simply by watching or listening. By creating one single, standardized educational template, we're trying to standardize a whole spectrum of humanity, and that just doesn't work. There are some types of education, such as those found in Montessori schools, that try to foster a more diverse learning environment, allowing students to learn at different paces and having students who grasp subjects more quickly work with those who are struggling. This allows more room for personal growth, but also fosters empathy and interpersonal skills. 
The jury is still out on whether Montessori schools are strictly better than more traditional education, but some studies seem to say pretty conclusively that their students fare better than those in standard schools. Our ad system respects your privacy, but if you'd like to get rid of them entirely, we would love to have you as a member of the show. You just mentioned that Maria Montessori had sort of a distinctive view of the the way that children develop the the stages or the the periods of a of a child's development. So what does she think adults should be doing to help children make their way through these stages of development and and get the things that they need to develop successfully? Maybe focusing especially on the the first two phases. Yeah, so she thinks that adults should set up an environment for very young children where the children can be successful in navigating that environment where it's comprehensible to them where it's really designed for them like simple things like everything is in reach and they can they can use all the furniture the second thing is she thought that you should just in terms of the environment she thought that you should the environment should be stocked with learning materials which she kind of borrowed and expanded on and modified from french from a number of people, but especially French theorists and some German theorists um, like Froebel and Sagoon, who were developing kind of hands-on learning materials that instantiated abstract principles. So she had these exercises that you would do with sensorial materials, with, sens- with other kinds of materials where you would sort them and explore them in various structured ways. All of this was set up in an environment where if you did it right, and you kind of set the right tone and had the right rules and, and set the right gravitas, and we can talk about how to do that, you could really let children loose in this environment and they would be pretty orderly. They would go to a shelf. If you kind of showed them how get out a material, bring it to a table, work on it, practice with it for a while. When they were done, bring it back to the material and then look around the room and see what they wanted to do next. And they would do this for some hours for a really long time. And while they were working, they would be really, really concentrated. And that phenomenon of really, really intensive concentration, concentrated work effort, she has different terms for it. We, that higher ground call it work. That's really central, enabling and facilitating that. So you're enabling and facilitating that, and then you're setting up the environment so that when children are engaged, when they're working, they're working on things that are valuable, that are intellectually valuable or practically valuable, that build the child's cognition, their sense of independence, their confidence, their ability to kind of sort the world into useful categories, scaffold things like literacy and mathematics later and and other kinds of cultural subjects too. So you want a prepared environment where the things that children are excited to work on are very valuable and they add up to the scope and sequence, but very, very fundamental to it is just that children are working at all. So six to 12 is quite a bit different. It's similar in that she still thinks you should prepare the environment and she still thinks you should give children a lot of freedom, but children at this age are able to receive instruction and learn from instruction and benefit from instruction in a way that's qualitatively different. Remember, they're not in the absorbent mind, they're now conscious. So a lot of instruction is framed around big picture stories that kind of, what are called in Montessori, the great stories that set a kind of framework for understanding anything that you might want to study. And then children are using a mixture of hands-on materials that are really extensions of and continuations of what happens earlier. And then there's also a lot of reading and writing. And there are presentations that are more kind of contentful. I think it's okay to have 
a fair amount of didactic material in elementary. You don't want it to dominate the classroom. And, and it's not like you're sitting and listening to lectures all day, but children love hearing lectures if, if you make it interesting for them and you do it right. And it's embedded in a kind of very active scope and sequence. So there's more presentations that are like that, especially when it comes to history and to some extent when it comes to science and literature too. So you're still independent. You're still choosing work off the shelf and working on it. You're still organizing your own time. You keep a work journal or you have some other mechanism of kind of managing your time. You meet with a teacher. It's almost like you're in an open office and like you're meeting with your startup boss and they're like, what are you working on? And you're like this. And they're like, cool. Well, like, don't forget about these other priorities and kind of work on them together. You're getting a lot of feedback. The Montessori curriculum is very big on formative assessments. So, so a kind of continuous stream of feedback. Insofar as you can get it directly from the materials, what Montessori called control of error, that's best. But you can get a lot of feedback from peers and adults as well at this age. So what we've talked a lot about materials. What would you say is the advantage of learning from materials, especially for those elementary children where you might think that you know there, there are ways that people try to teach math to elementary children that don't involve the hands-on materials that the teacher just explains things or shows things. What's, what is the benefit of the materials? So we can play a game with our listeners. So probably if I ask you, what's the formula to calculate the area of a circle? Probably a lot of you will be like, I think it's pi r squared. You'll remember something about the formula from your elementary years. And if I say, what's pi? Probably even more of you will be like something like 3.14, like maybe at some point in childhood, if you are like me in a math geek, you tried to memorize it to as many digits as possible. I think it can still be like 10 or 12. But what is pi? Where does that number come from? Why does it work? Why do you calculate the area by multiplying this random freaking number, 3.14, this irrational number, you might remember that it's irrational, by the square of the radius? I mean, I talk to a lot of educators and a lot of adults generally, and a tiny minority can answer that question. What does all of this mean? Like a lot of math, I mean, the way that you typically go through math is you memorize algorithms, basically, like a set of procedures. Why Why does that? What is that? What the F is? It's like, you know from a calculator that it works and everybody learns it in school, but the thing that most people internalize is there are these random algorithms that seem to work by magic. And I guess there's some reason why they work. I don't understand why they work. But if I do it, I'll get the right answer and I'll get good grades. There are reasons why these things work. And you can teach it so that children understand why they work. And it doesn't involve doing a bunch of really abstract number theoretic demonstrations. The history of math, and when you do math education done right, is replete with more concrete, more visual demonstrations of mathematical principles, what I earlier referred to as constructive geometry. But you can represent, even in non-geometrical context, you can represent a lot of mathematical truths physically. And you can actually see what's going on. I mean, every elementary student in a Montessori classroom knows that pi is a ratio. It's the ratio between the circumference and the diameter of the circle. And that if you roll the circle, if you unroll the circle and you compare it to the diameter every single time, no matter how big the circle is, you get three and a little bit radiuses, or sorry, diameters when you're unrolling the circumference. And there's all these exercises that you do. And you puzzle over that. You're like, that's funny. Why is that? And you, you puzzle over its irrationality. And then you come to understand visually through a series of kind of constructive geometric Euclidean Pythagorean exercises and materials, what the relationship is between that ratio 
and the various formula that you can use for circles, like how to calculate an area and how to calculate the diameter from, from circumference. You really understand it. And if that's how you learn math, what you learn is that the world has all these relationships that you can see and understand, and that's what math is about. And you can ask questions about it, and you can observe differences, and you can get into it, and you can notice patterns. You yourself can do it, and at each step you can understand what's going on. And yeah, you do want to learn the algorithms at some point. Like You want to kind of compress it down to quick. Um, do you want to memorize things? You want to compress it down. You want to make your mind faster. But whenever you do it, you get it. You get kind of why it's happening. And that's a very different lesson to internalize over the course of 12 years. And that is just such an amazing power to have in your mind. And it's just a totally different habit of mind. You mentioned also control of error through the materials. Does that have to do with this idea? Yeah. So Montessori had this technical term control of error. And the easy way to understand it, it's a pretty straightforward idea, is that the situation is set up so that when the child makes a mistake, the child can notice themselves. The child himself or herself can notice it. So a simple example is with the pink tower. So the pink tower is, a, is 10 pink cubes that start off at 10 centimeters height, width, and length and go down by one until you get to one centimeter. And the basic task of the pink tower, there are a number of things you can do with them, but the basic task is just to stack them in order. You kind of start with them in disarray and you stack them in order. And let's say that you don't stack them in order. You can do it, but A, it's harder. It's less stable. So if you really get it wrong, the pink tower is going to fall apart, especially these are toddlers, right? Who are doing this. So it's not like you're playing Jenga as an adult and you're doing all these ninja things. You're like just trying to like stacking is a thing that children have to learn how to do. So if you stack them in the wrong order, it's more likely to knock down. And even if you get it, even if you manage it in the right order and you look at it at the end, it's very visually obvious that something is off and something is wrong, especially when the pink tower in its default configuration is correct. So the way that the pink tower sits in the room and the thing that you've seen for years and years coming into the Montessori classroom, or maybe not years and years, but at least months and months coming into the Montessori classroom before you do it is this beautifully linearly, triangularly, monotonically decreasing setup tower um, in the room. And you've just kind of internalized that idea. So for a variety of reasons, nobody needs to come and tell you, you did it wrong. You don't need the adult, it's person to come, this authority figure to come and explain to you why you did it wrong. You yourself can see that you did it wrong. And so you get used to checking your own work and you get comfortable with mistakes. And there's this great Paul Graham quote from one of his recent essays, I think, or maybe it's just a tweet where he said something like, in school, what you internalize is that life is a series of tests that you have to do perfectly on. And what you learn in real life is that life is, life is a series of easy tests that you have to do perfectly on. And what you learn in real life is that life is a series of very hard tests where if you do mediocrely on them, if you do averagely on them, like you're, that's great. Like you can get a lot of things wrong as long as you're getting some things right. And it's really hard to make things perfect and you're going to make mistakes all the time, but you're accomplishing something real. And that just that kind of friendliness with like, things are hard. Like I've got to, I've got to be the one to assess whether things are going well or poorly. Like that, that you would get that lesson in school is very unusual and control of error is an idea that runs through that. And so as much as possible, Montessori materials are set up so that children can notice when they're making mistakes themselves. And that's just like, they get comfortable with that and it's fine and they fix it. That's just, it's a lesson that a lot of people struggle with. A lot of people don't like making mistakes. I think typical traditional school really does inculcate in you a kind of unhealthy perfectionism. Like either you're going to get a perfect or it's not worth doing. I 
can't take them back. It was almost like a, a desperation. When you outline what's appealing to you about homeschooling, on paper, it's exactly the same as what someone who might be on the complete right wing end of the spectrum is also saying. The system is broken. Now, the issue is we don't agree on how to fix it, but we actually all agree that it's broken. It's, it's similar to homeschooling. Whenever there's a threat in any particular state to their right to homeschool, oh, you will see us come together. You know, it may not, we're not going to stay together, but we will band up because we all desperately need our right to homeschool. What is your relationship as a homeschooler with the HSLDA? My family is a member of the group, which basically means like if there was a knock at the door or some type of challenge to our ability to homeschool, like you can call them and they'll represent you free of charge. And that's the nuanced aspect of being in the homeschool world. The people that you have to work with in order to maintain what you hold dear are also the people who crush you. We've been protecting and equipping homeschool families for more than 35 years. Johnston's one of more than 100,000 families who pay annual fees of about $130 for that kind of support. Between memberships and donations, the HSLDA has brought in as much as $13 million a year, money it uses to protect families from restrictions on their ability to homeschool. We'll send letters, make calls, and even represent you in court. Over the past few decades, the HSLDA has helped make it easier to homeschool across the country. Today, 16 states have no curriculum requirements, 32 states have no mandatory testing, and in 12 states, parents don't even have to notify officials when they pull their kid out of school. The HSLDA's fundamental opposition to regulation means its activism extends well beyond homeschooling itself. It's opposed vaccine requirements, unionization efforts, even same-sex marriage, and has recently supported a slew of parents' rights bills. When the HSLDA picks up a cause, it can torpedo legislation with a single call to action, even when it doesn't seem like the kind of bill a group supporting children would be opposed to. This happened in 2018, when a teacher in West Virginia reported an eight-year-old student named Rayleigh Browning was showing signs of abuse. Child Protective Services launched an investigation, but then her dad pulled her out and registered her as a homeschooler. Rayleigh died at a local hospital the day after Christmas 2018. Two nurses testified the eight-year-old had scabs and bruising on her body. Her legs showed a burn mark. Judge Blake and Special Prosecutor Brian Parsons say homeschooling played a role in the victim's death. After she died, State Delegate Sean Flaherty introduced a bill called Rayleigh's Law which would block students from being homeschooled if their parents or guardians are suspected or have been convicted of child abuse. The idea that on the one end in public schools, we have mandatory reporting, but that we can get around this through just simply being a homeschooler, that should have some sort of parameters in place and protections in place. Did you think it would be controversial? No, no not at all. What reaction did you get? The reaction I received was, uh, that certain people felt that it was some sort of an attack on homeschooling and not an attack on people who abuse children. I actually had people show up to my office. We had pushback from uh, the homeschool groups in West Virginia. Some national groups stepped in as well. I would get kind of boilerplate emails, which tips you off as a legislator that there's a coordinated effort going on. There are groups, I want to say there's like this homeschool defense fund group that came out against Rayleigh's Law. The HSLDA? That's it. And there were quotes about how awful this bill was, and it's an attack on homeschooling, and 
you know, they want to move the, the goalposts. That's what you do in politics, but I always thought maybe protecting children, you wouldn't actually go about that. What's the status? Sitting in committee for who knows how long until the chairman decides it's worthy of his time. And that's because he wants to do what the homeschoolers want to do, not necessarily what's in the best interest of all children in West Virginia. Did you know that there was this kind of homeschool lobby before you introduced this legislation? I was aware of the lobby. Uh, I wasn't aware of the grips that they really have on the legislature. What they have is a grip on the education system in West Virginia. They have a grip on legislation and how it moves. They control the education committees in both the House and the Senate. What effect does this amount of control have on the public education system? Well, public education is not a priority in the sense of public education. I mean, things for homeschooling, we just passed out legislation for pod schools. So you have all these domino effect pieces of legislation. And then what, what's on the back burner? Public education itself. this experience that a lot of parents have had this is that you, you know this is just not working for your children and you've got to figure something out like what, what were some of the thoughts that led you to where you are now I grew up you know I was in foster situations I was growing up in a home that was mired with addiction so my mm -hmm. my journey actually begins with myself in my firsthand experience I was expelled from a public school I got my GED from Boston Public Schools um, I was lucky I was able to kind of scratch and claw my way into college, but it was by the skin of my teeth. So by the time I had children and I had three little boys, um, you know, I came in, I was a union organizer. I was teaching other people how to advocate for themselves. So when I, my oldest son was diagnosed with ADHD and autism, I was like, this is going to be fine because even though I'm coming into this with my dukes up, like I'm going to be able to advocate for my kid and I'm going to get this done. Well, what I found out very quickly when my son was suspended from school 36 times in kindergarten was at the end of that IE table, I have no voice. As a parent, no one cares. No one's on your side. And all of those educators had already given up on my son by the age of six. They were done with him. They were pissed off at him. They were writing him off. They're calling me to pick him up. They're putting him in a redirect room that looks like a cinder block cell. And I, I was horrified. But I, I had no idea what, what was going on in our education system. I just, you know, the great trauma of my life was being expelled from school. I thought it was my fault. Uh, not knowing that literally we, we have a system that's set up to fail kids like me, kids like my son. I, I didn't know any of this. All I knew is that I had no power. And when I get mad, I organize. Tell me about your organization, Carrie. What, what does the National Parents Union do? What, what, is, what do you do and what's the goal? So we are all parent advocates, activists, and agitators. That's what we are. We are more than 500 organizations all across all 50 states, D.C. and Puerto Rico, and it's parent-led advocacy. You know, there are pockets of parent power in all corners of this nation. We have mamas who are, are building groups in their neighborhoods who are doing building solidarity together so that they can speak with a united voice, so that they can share resources and we can talk back and forth, and then we can speak truth to power. But what's the goal of the parent union? How would you describe it, the National Parent Union, of which you are the president? How would you describe the goal? 
the goal is to ensure that every child in America has equitable access to high quality education. So, Bernita Bradley, tell me your story. You were being committed to homeschooling for some time. So as briefly as you can, tell us your journey on that, will you? Yeah, so um, I'll, I'll say here in Detroit, we only had 13% of our kids reading on grade level, 16% right before the pandemic. And during the pandemic, beginning of the pandemic, children didn't have access to tablets, tools to even make online learning possible. Families were tapping out. Uh, specifically, my daughter asked me in fifth grade to homeschool her. But during the beginning of the pandemic, she was in 11th grade. And she came to me at the end and told me after having interactions with only one teacher for five months. And she was like, if my senior year is going to be like this, I'm dropping out. And I was like, well, no, you're not. So what do we need to do? Right. And so she was like, well, let's try homeschooling. And I'm like, OK, well, let's do this. What do we need to do to do this? So Again, we're we're activists, right? So if my child, like, and based on just the other voices we were hearing from our community, of parents tapping out and tired, we were like, what do we need to do? What what do we need to learn how to do to homeschool? And then we opened up Engage Detroit, our homeschool co-op. So now we had coaches for parents who wanted to homeschool. What do you need for your child, for your individual household to homeschool and make sure it's successful for your kid? I'm going to go back to something you said. You said that your daughter had been asking to be homeschooled since fifth grade. How did you react when she said that to you? Like that, I, I, I can only imagine the feelings that you would have had. Yeah. So my daughter had been through extreme bullying. She'd been through bullying with teachers. Um, schools that were just were poor managed. And and at fifth grade, she was just like, I tap out. I'm ready to, can you homeschool me, right? And my thought, first of all, was, okay, I'm not an educator. I don't need to be at a desk with you all day. Like, hey, get it done. Do this, do this. And I'm working all day. So I didn't have, I felt like I didn't have the autonomy to do that. I didn't have the wherewith to do it in as far as all the other tasks I had as an advocate, as a community organizer, as a mom. So I tried to find my daughter better schools. I tried to find her like she got into an A-rated school in fifth grade and that A-rated school still failed her in the city of Detroit. It still did not have what she needed. Um, throughout her lifespan, my daughter has been in eight different schools. And that right there was not just like, oh, this parent who's like, I'm just going to keep switching schools. We fought for change in those schools, fought not just for the change of my daughter, but the change of all the kids in the school. Carrie Rodriguez, if you were to sort of sum up what you think is wrong with the way education is set up in this country right now, and I'm thinking particularly here K through 12, what, what would you say that is? We have systemic racism in literally every system in our country, and we have generational systemic racism that is embedded in our education system and we don't address it we cover it up we say we want more money to fortify the school to prison pipeline and we do not confront the deep problems that we have in our education system in the u.s teachers work about nine and a quarter hours a day That's an hour and a half longer than the average for teachers in other countries in the Organization for Economic Development, or OECD for short. That's a group of mostly wealthy countries that economists often compare to one another. Teachers in the U.S. work more than two and a half hours longer than their colleagues in South Korea, Finland, and Israel. 
There are some countries with similar teacher work hours to the United States, like New Zealand, Singapore, and the UK. Teachers in Japan, for example, work nearly two hours more per day than teachers in the U.S. But in all of these countries, teaching hours are much lower. Of the nine and a quarter hours that American teachers work every day, they spend about five and a half of those hours actually teaching. That's more than the OECD average and significantly more than teachers in New Zealand, the UK, South Korea, Japan, and Singapore. Teachers in these countries get more time for planning, grading, and collaborating with each other. So do all those extra teaching hours translate to better results? Students in the U.S. score slightly above the OECD average on the PISA exam, which tests 15-year-olds all over the world in reading science and math. But they score lower than students in countries like Finland, South Korea, Japan, and Singapore, where teaching hours are much lower. If we look inside Anna and Sophia's classroom in the U.S. and Finland, we'd see Anna teaching an hour and a half more per day than Sophia. Anna also spends more time planning lessons, grading student work, and leading extracurricular activities. But those extra hours aren't necessarily reflected in Anna's paycheck. If you compare Sophia to other people in Finland with college degrees, she makes about 98 cents for every dollar that they make. That's on par with the pay ratio between teachers and college graduates in similar countries. But Anna and other American middle school teachers only make about 65 cents for every dollar that their college-educated peers make. Still, as politicians in the U.S. never tire of pointing out, we We spend spend more more per student than almost any country, I think, than nearly every other country in the developed world. But that figure varies a lot by state. New York spends twice as much as California on each student. Mississippi spends less than half as much as Alaska. And American schools generally spend a lot more on security and other non-instructional costs than schools in other countries. Plus, if you look at the share of its national wealth or GDP that each country spends on education, you can see there are plenty of countries spending a bigger share than the U.S. There's one other difference between Anna and Sophia. When they're asked whether people in their country value teachers, two out of three Finnish teachers say yes. But just one in three American teachers agree. There are a lot of reasons why teachers like Anna leave the classroom. But if the U.S. wants to keep more of them around, we might want to take a few pages from Finland's book. Teaching is a much more prestigious thing in Finland, isn't it? It can be quite hard to get a training place to study to be a teacher. How are schools different there? Uh, yes, it, it, it's, it's very hard to become a teacher because so many people want to be teachers. It's actually quite hard to be a, a nursery nurse. You have to get a master's degree if you're going to look after three or four-year-olds in Finland because it's, it's, it's treated seriously. And the schools are in some ways quite different from, from ours. Uh, for start, they're all very similar to each other. So they have almost no or the lowest variation between schools that you see anywhere in Europe. There aren't good schools and bad schools. They're just good schools and they do quite a lot of work to achieve that. But teachers also have an enormous amount of autonomy to decide what they do. 
when and lots and lo- lots of people visit Finnish schools, they get a bit sick of people visiting them because it was an education that Finland first topped the ranks in these um, huge numbers of international rankings. When people go to Finnish schools, they're somewhat surprised because it looks a bit anarchic, like the rest of Europe. And we, we're often not aware in England, but school uniform isn't a normal thing. <laughs> I did. It's Malta. Uh, England and a few of our ex-colonies around the world where we make ch- children dress up. So, of course, there's no school uniform. There isn't in, in the rest of Europe. But also, children might not wear shoes indoors. They're allowed to work on their own. It's it's not so regimented, not the same kind of authoritarian uh, structure that we've moved more to. And the irony about all of this is that Finland used to have a very divided education system. It used to have elite grammar schools and then schools with lower orders. And in the 1960s, the Finns came to England to see how can you do education better? And they copied our comprehensive model, and then they took it further and further along a path. And and now when you measure the ability of Finnish children to solve problems or to be creative or to do maths, they're incredible at maths, it's stunning. And the average number of languages spoken by a Finnish child, I think, is about six fairly well languages by the age of 16, maybe about six by the age of 18, six languages. Um, <laughs> you know, Swedish, Finnish, maybe Russian, certainly English, maybe German, not seen as abnormal. And people do travel from around the world to see how it can work and, and what can happen. And, and the great advantage is not having this divide between schools. There are a tiny number of private schools in Finland, I think less than 1%. And those 1% are often actually heavily state-subsidised, so they're hardly private. So you don't have people worrying so much about trying to get their children into this school and not, not that school. And that is really, really beneficial. And let's start with what, for you, is at the heart of it, the teacher. In Finland, you stress... Teaching is a high-status profession, with entry requiring a research-based master's qualification. National curricular frameworks are broad brush. There is not a system of rigorous inspection. Teachers don't have excessive class time, and they collaborate with each other in problem-solving. So why is, as you put it, trusting the teachers so important in your view? Yeah, yeah. First of all, I think I think it's important to to make one notion that the this a- academic teacher education that you you mentioned in your question um, has been the the only pathway uh, into teaching in Finland since the really early 1980s. Uh, unlike in many other countries, um, uh, there are different different ways to become a teacher, but in Finland that has been the, the only way. And it's a critically important element of this uh, trust-based uh, system. So today, as you said, all teachers, they, they hold master's degrees, including the the, the preschool and, and primary school uh, teachers that uh, allows them to you know, not only teach better, but also plan what they teach in a school in a different ways and, and also evaluate and, and, and assess, uh, students' outcomes. So that's why Finland doesn't really need to spend that much attention and money to external, uh, national assessments because m- much of the assessment is done by, um, uh, done by teachers. And, and these are these, Planning and teaching and assessing the, these are the, the critically important professional elements of what teachers do. So now when, when in, in Finland, when the teachers are prepared to 
to understand and, and manage and, and continuously improve these three core elements. The system can trust them in, in all these uh, aspects of schooling. Um, and, and by the way, all the, the parents can trust their, their own children to the hands of these uh, highly, highly trained and, and qualified teachers. Uh, so trust is, is, is an important part of this, what we call a social capital uh, that in turn will, will help people to do better what they are supposed to do. We, we all know this from, uh, you know, raising our own children. Anybody who has uh, been a parent knows that, you, you know, when you trust your own kids to do the right thing and behave well, that they, they normally do it better than if you control them all the time and, and you know, de- deny things uh, from them. So, um, so when, you know, my, my conclusion here is that when we trust our teachers, not just to do what they are told to do, and this is what happens in many countries, but that they are able to um, allow to, you know, figure out the best ways to teach and run their schools, then these miracles uh, happen. And that's why this trust in teachers uh, in Finland has created the kind of a self-improving human development system that is complex and it's living and it's organic unlike in many other places where the system is much more mechanic and deterministic in a, in a sense but you know that kind of an organic system and self-improving culture can can only be created when there's enough trust in uh, in teachers and schools and uh, and the system okay now let's turn to the child's perspective <clears throat> Early years education has been developing in recent years in Finland, but formal schooling only starts when children are seven. The primary and lower secondary system has now been unified. Every child is presumed to have talent, and most children benefit from special education at some point. Children are not streamed, nor do they undergo externally moderated standardized tests until they leave compulsory education, now continuing to age 18. Why is this a better route to good outcomes for all children and overall performance than more competition and preparation for frequent standardized tests? Yeah, Robin, as you said, that the Finnish education system is to large extent really designed from the, the the children's perspective just like you like, like you said it 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 assumes in a way that all children are different they they have different talents and different interests and they have different living circumstances and uh, they also have different ways of uh, of learning and that the Finnish system uh, assumes that children can can be talented and successful in schools in many different ways, not just academically. Again, that is a very common way in many, many other countries that you are, you are good in school if you are good in, in literacy and, and numeracy, but you are not, not necessarily good in school if you, if you are talented in, in some other things. So, you, so that's why this, the standardized assessments, um, uh, by the design, how they are designed have much narrower conception of intelligence than, than the holistic teacher-led assessments of students. That is a common practice in all uh, Finnish schools. As I said, that, that we don't have a national standardized assessments in Finland. So, so the, the students are always assessed by, by their, their teachers and, and teachers 
obviously they look at their children in a broader way and more holistic way than just the standardized um, standardized assessments. So again, you know, going back to this uh, winners and losers uh, notion that that we we both said earlier that the standardized test will always produce uh, winners and and losers. Uh, you know, if, if the the tests only produce winners then a good, good tests and if they only you know fail all the students they're, they're bad test either so so that's a kind of a nature of um uh of you, you know using employing standardized tests and that's why assessing students in terms of their their own potential and talents is most likely to help uh you know most of the students to realize that their, their talents and this is exactly what the Finnish system is is trying to do they um Latin derivation of education is educare, to draw out, and uh, the implication of what you're saying is this is about drawing out the individual potential which every child in their own different way has. Okay, That's right. and then uh, there is the school. Um, in Sweden, which you mentioned earlier, uh, Pazzi, uh, for years the drift has been towards this idea of parental choice. Um, but in Finland, the expectation is simply that, that the child will go to the local school which will be as good as any other school and indeed will provide a range of pastoral and other services in addition to the strictly educational ones. What then makes school principals and their teaching staffs strive to improve and how do they do it? Yes, you know, this notion actually that the, the, the best school for all the children should be their neighborhood school is, uh, it was initially the Finnish idea that, and, and many people kind of uh, didn't believe that the Finnish system is operating like this. Interesting thing is that the OECD, for example, now when they're using the, the global evidence from different education systems has concluded exactly the same, same thing, that the, the successful education systems are designed in a way that the, the neighborhood school is, is the, uh, the the good enough school for each and every child. But in Finland, when we look at the principals and teachers, they are not only interested in doing their best in their own schools, but also that they are also concerned about how they can support and help other schools around them. And there are, there are a lot of studies and reviews showing that this is a fairly unique way of, uh, you know, being a teacher or leading a school. Uh, and, and that's why the, in Finland, the school leadership has a, a strong collective dimension, uh, where the principals share their time and often resources as well by helping their, their colleagues and, and neighboring schools. Again, something that is, uh, difficult to find in, in most other education systems where the, the principals and teachers are mostly occupied by the, you know, making sure that their own school is successful. And when there is this competitive culture, their interest is to be better than the, their, their neighboring school. So this is another, uh, positive side of the, the absence of this, uh, corporate, uh, like toxic competition between the schools that we mentioned uh, earlier so the, the the my experience is that the finnish uh, principals and teachers have a have a sort of a sense of belonging to the community and the uh, the nation the nation building they feel that together with their colleagues in their communities and broader in the system that they can they can make their their own communities and the the whole nation better and that way they can change the world.
We've just heard clips today, starting with Sir Ken Robinson in his TED Talk discussing some of the fundamental problems with our education system. Second Thought explained the outdated model of education that is hurting outcomes. New Ideal explained some of the tenets of the Montessori philosophy of education. Vice News looked into the outsized influence of homeschoolers on public education. Amanpour and Company spoke with parents who homeschool their black and brown children to get them away from systemic bias. Vox compared the U.S. education system to other OECD countries. The Social Europe podcast explained a bit about what makes the Finnish system work so well, and The Bunker described how the Finnish looked for ways to improve their system and then never stopped improving. That's what everybody heard, but members also heard bonus clips from Andrew Parker, who spoke with a product of the unschooling movement. So envision a few families coming together, all with the same idea of like not wanting to go back to school, but wanting to create this really awesome learning environment where people can have friends, can do stuff with their friends, do the things that they want, actually want to do with their friends all day long, as much as they want. There's more and more people around the world that are doing this, smaller groups of people learning together in really awesome, fun and joyful ways. And Education on Fire looked at the niche program designed for nomadic families. The idea was just absolutely mind-boggling to be able to create something where families can travel, they can absorb the local culture, and actually be truly, truly globally educated, and that the adults can work and know that their kids are getting a solid education. To hear that and have all of our bonus content delivered seamlessly to the new members-only podcast feed that you'll receive, sign up to support the show at bestoftheleft.com slash support, or shoot me an email requesting a financial hardship membership because we don't let a lack of funds stand in the way of hearing more information. And to wrap up today, I just wanted to focus on a few basic takeaways that come to my mind. The first is that the mere existence of all of these splinter ideas for education is all the evidence we need that there is an obvious hunger for alternatives to our standard public school system, and that shouldn't be ignored. You, you, you may disagree with it. You may think, no, the public system is, is better, and that's important, but to ignore the desire for alternatives, I think we do at our peril. But the second takeaway is that Finland makes clear that it is possible to fundamentally change an education system without breaking it apart into several systems, particularly when many of those splinter versions are privatized profit centers for investors. You don't have to do that in order to make uh, improvements and have those improvements meet the needs of people who might otherwise want to move away from the public system. And, and number three, I, I just can't help but Think of the old proverb that it takes a village to raise a child, right? We've probably all heard that, except that there's a variation on that phrase that I actually like a little bit better. I can't find any reference to where this came from, and for a while, I thought that what I'm about to say was the real version, the real original phrase, but I can't find any evidence for that either, so I don't know where this came from. But anyway, the, the variation that I like is, it takes a village to raise a villager, and on one hand, you could say that that puts a whole new spin on the original idea, or, and this is what I think is more accurate, or it could be that that's just getting closer to the original meaning from when it was presumed unquestionably that a child would grow into a villager. In other words, someone who 
cared for and felt connected to the village. Whereas today in our society, that's not necessarily true. And I think a lot of people even bristle at the idea that it takes a villager at all because individualism and a family can raise a child and that child can be an individual adult, right? But we're missing a lot of the elements of the villager mindset. And I mean, that proverb is theorized to have come from Africa from, you know, who knows how long ago. And I'm pretty sure that the idea of a child is, it goes without saying that they are simply a future villager and therefore need to be raised by the whole village. But the point is, and, and the way this ties into our education system, is that I think there's a value in universally shared experiences that we miss out on if we allow for a widely atomized education system. Individual families may make the rational choice to do what's best for their children's situation, which may mean pulling them out of the public school system. And you can't blame individuals for making rational decisions within a system that doesn't serve their needs. But when it comes to the value of raising villagers, not just individuals, we should feel a strong motivation to improve our public school system, not just for those who are going through it, but with an eye towards those who might be inclined to pull their kids out of the public system and try to figure out as many ways as possible to keep everyone together. So I'm actually an example of a person uh, for whom the public system was not a great fit. I had a hard time going through school where there was some flexibility available. I often took advantage of it and that saved me a time or two, but I really needed even more flexibility than was available. And I may very well have benefited from something closer to the Montessori philosophy of teaching, but I can also see the major downsides that would go with being pulled out of the public school, pulled away from everyone I knew, having been moved to another school, and just having a very different experience of going through a system with a self-selected group of kids and families who have decided to go to a special school. You know, I, I don't have any desire to have been different, to, to have gone and done something special. I would much rather that the public system incorporate more of the ideas that come from places like Montessori or Waldorf so that they are naturally part of the standard system than something that, you know, requires upheaval and changing schools and all of that. And from the sounds of it, that seems to be part of what the Finnish system does as more of a blended system facilitated by highly competent teachers. They can address the needs of a far higher percentage of students, which decreases even the desire for splinter systems to exist. So when you hear the argument that problems in the public school system is evidence that we need more alternatives or choice, more private schools, charter schools, homeschooling, etc., Keep in mind what we're collectively losing when we forget the value of educating collectively. I mean, we're a highly divided society on multiple planes of existence, financially, politically, etc. We should be doing everything in our power to have the experience of children be more universal to create a foundation for a future that is far less divided than we have today, because no one likes what we're going through today. 
As always, keep the comments coming in. You can leave us a voicemail or send us a text message to 202-999-3991 or keep it old school by emailing me to j at bestofleft.com. Thanks to everyone for listening. Thanks to Dion Clark and Aaron Clayton for their research work for the show and participation in our bonus episodes. Thanks to our transcriptionist trio, Ken, Brian, and LaWindy for their volunteer work helping put our transcripts together. Thanks to Amanda Hoffman for all of her work on our social media outlets, activism segments, graphic designing, webmastering, and bonus show co-hosting. And thanks to those who support the show by becoming a member or purchasing gift memberships at bestofleft.com slash support through our Patreon page or from right inside the Apple Podcast app. Memberships is how you get instant access to our incredibly good and often funny bonus episodes. In addition to there being extra content, no ads, and chapter markers in all of our regular episodes, all through your regular podcast player. And if you want to continue the discussion, join our Discord community. There's a link to join in the show notes. So coming to you from far outside the conventional wisdom of Washington, D.C., my name is Jay, and this has been the Best of the Left podcast, coming to you twice weekly, thanks entirely to the members and donors to the show from bestoftheleft.com. Bestoftheleft.com.